having that humility to know that eventually they are going to solve their own challenges. We are just facilitators. We are, we are not the professionals. We just going to work with them as they make decisions, design decisions in, in, in health. We say in design that the person closest to the challenge knows most about the challenge and also is in the best position to uh, solve it. Welcome back to Design Lab. I'm Bon Ku. Do you want to support this podcast? We don't need your money, but we do need you to go to Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, and leave us a comment. We got this one this week from Vermont Recurred, who is a seasoned healthcare designer who states that the great diversity of guests on the show results in a wonderful mind expansion. Thank you for that comment, and I think I know who you are. Also, you can support us by downloading and subscribing to the show on whatever platform you use to listen. On today's show, we have Michael Gigi. Michael is the co-studio lead of Think Place Kenya, where he leads a team of designers drawn from over eight different countries. He's passionate about Africa and unlocking the potential of the continent through design thinking. Michael has traveled across Africa understanding the different cultures and connecting people with solutions to their challenges. Michael is a board member of Design for Health. That's a global initiative led by USAID and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And he's also currently studying at Harvard Business School Program for Leadership Development. I talk with Michael about his incredible journey from living on the streets of Nairobi to becoming a designer, incorporating design in public health projects, and throwing our biases out the window. Here's our conversation. Michael Gigi, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you. Thank you, Bon. I'm happy to be here. So you're currently located in Nairobi, Kenya. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I've never been to Nairobi, but I know it's a big city, about 4 million people. So it's like comparable to LA County. And there's a, well, I know there's a lot of traffic, but a lot of different, very multicultural uh, and a lot of businesses there. And yeah, yeah, Nairobi is very, is very lively and uh, metropolitan and uh, yes, about the same population size of LA, but only more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and, and Michael, thank you for delaying your happy hour. It's afternoon, you know, approaching the evening on a Friday and it's morning here in Philadelphia for me. So I'm drinking coffee. So I'm delaying your, your fun for the weekend, but I appreciate you hanging out with me on your Friday afternoon at the end of a business day. This is a good way to start my Friday fun. So <laughs> this couldn't have come at a better time. Wonderful. Did, so did you grow up in Nairobi? Is that where you're from? Yes, born and raised in Nairobi, and you know all my life. So I haven't haven't been. I've lived outside Nairobi, Kenya, for about two years, but then that's the longest. Okay, and Robert Fabrican told me just a really inspiring story, and it's an incredible story about your design journey. You're a leader in design, but he said at one point you were actually living out of a phone booth on the streets of Nairobi. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Unbelievable. Can you, do you feel comfortable sharing a bit about what that journey was like for the audience? Sure. Well, it's a long story, but it started off after I finished high school. It was a very, 
uh, interesting time in my life where I had such a bad experience in, in, in high school where I started off by bullying and at the same time we were also going through a transition as, uh, as a family and I ended up hating school so much and also really disliking everything that came with order and, and, mm. and I found myself uh, in a place where I had to, to make a decision on you know, how much of my life I was going to be able to control. Mm-hmm. So after finishing high school, I had the option of staying with my parents and helping out at the farm. But then it wasn't easy there at the farm. It was uh, it's a semi-arid area and mm-hmm. it hardly rains. And I, you know, whenever I sat down to, to, to try and think if, this, if that is what I wanted for my life, you know, it wasn't adding up. And so I decided to leave home and you know, it was a classical story of, you know, you leave a rural uh, area and go out into the city and, and, and try out, try out with the rest of, of, of the young people yeah. there. But then I started first by living with friends, staying with uh, family and that didn't last long. They would, would probably, we, we, we'd normally get to a place where they'll start asking what plan do you have? And so at that point, I found myself just living out on the street. And it started as a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. And then the second night passed, and the third. And then I sort of found that to be my life, basically. And I found friends. I made new friends who were also in the same situation as me. Mm. We weren't coming from abject poverty it's not that we didn't have families who loved us but we we just wanted something more for ourselves and that's how i found myself out in the street uh, living in a phone booth Mm. and how did you then begin your career in design from that that's just an incredible story yeah so so interesting i've always been artistic and I blame my mother because the first, <laughs> <laughs> the first time I, I, I made a drawing, she looked at it and she said, this is the best drawing I've ever seen. There's wow. something special about you. You know, wow. thinking back, I think the drawing wasn't that good. <laughs> but there is power in, in, in words spoken. Mm-hmm. And that never left me. And so... I knew whatever I was going to do in life was going to have that creative uh, dimension. Mm-hmm. And so while out on the street, I think that got reinforced again. So we used to, the phone booth was near a bus stop and every morning we used to see people going to work. So mm-hmm. my friends and I would, would start you know, playing this game where I would say, hey, I'm that guy and I'm not. This other guy looks very angry. This other guy looks very tired and is not enjoying his job. And so I'm this guy who's always going to work at 9 a.m. in a t-shirt and, and, and you know, just driving past listening to music. And so we did that for a while. And then one day we decided to start asking these people what they did for a living. Oh, wow. And this person who I still know up to date, he's called Matt. He we stopped him and we asked him, so what do you do? And he was very open with us. And he said, I'm a graphic designer. And that was the first time I had that. And I asked him, so graphic designer, so what, 
what does a graphic designer do? Coincidentally, there was a billboard that was just in the area and he said, you see that billboard? Yeah, I made that billboard. And that blew my mind because I made the assumption that with billboards, it's a matter of stretching out this large canvas and you spend mm. hours and hours painting the billboard. And so he told me, no, that's not how it's done. You do it on the computer and then you print it out. And that was a game changer for my friends and I. And we said, hey, we want to be graphic designers. Wow. And fast forward, we are all really good visual designers, only that now we've moved into other forms of design. But that was the that was how we started. That is unbelievable. So your introduction to graphic design came from this really random encounter that you had with someone on the street. Yeah, it was a visual representation of a lifestyle. So I didn't see design as a career or a profession. I saw the type of, the kind of life I'd want to live. Mm. And that's the life I'm living now. So you can imagine from the phone booth to where I am, I feel lucky. I feel very grateful. And currently you're the studio director for Kenya at Think Place. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And Think Place is a strategic design consultancy. You lead a team of designers from many different countries. And you've had so many really amazing projects, both in public health and in the business sector. Can you tell us what projects that you're currently working on that you're really enjoying? Well, um, currently, one of the projects that's making me really excited is working on a, on a piece that involves improving the maternal health system in four different countries in Africa. That includes Kenya, Ethiopia, Mali, and Malawi. And, you know, when we engaged the client, the first thing she said that really gave us an indication that this was a project that we had to be involved in, she said, I've been in this maternal health space for 20 years. I see nothing new, nothing is changing. Mm. And if you can change that picture for me, then we change the game. And that is how, that, that's the project we are currently working on. So it's a very complex project because it involves getting stakeholders who normally wouldn't uh, really uh, come together and really align on many issues. And it's about like brokering those conversations. It's about getting, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the stakeholders from government to sit on the same table with private sector and NGO and say, you know, for once, let's put all our tensions and motivations aside and let's focus on the beneficiary. In this case, mothers and young women. Mm. And so far, we've been able to bring them to the table and the conversations have only just begun. But if there's one thing we have learned with such types of projects is you have to be genuinely collaborative, regardless of who wants what. We have to bring them and really align on their motivation, get them to align on their motivations. That's an incredible design brief of changing maternal health in very four different countries in Africa. And I'm just thinking about her comment where she said, there's really nothing been done despite, you know, billions of dollars of investment. And I love that you bring in diverse stakeholders to the table at the beginning. And that's, 
not usually the case where we see these large multinational NGOs coming in, these large government entities. And what are some of maybe the mistakes that you've seen around global health with these large organizations coming in? And what role does design play in preventing some of those mistakes? So if you look at the history of global health, which is, you know, about a hundred or less years old, the first intentions behind global health were not to have this equitable healthcare approach. It was to, to mitigate some risks. For example, in Africa, you'd find that, you know, in the colonial era would have ranch owners, uh, you know, prohibiting their workers to drink alcohol and saying that it was for their for their for their own good uh, in terms of health but actually it wasn't the intention was different and we have the early beginnings of global health especially in africa that started off with very wrong intentions mm. it's very, and it's very paternal sounds very paternalistic yeah and prescriptive yeah. and so in this day and age we find that now for global health to be successful and to have positive outcomes we have to make sure that the beneficiaries are willing to take part in the process. Mm. And also we have to ensure that anyone who is working in this space has a genuine passion for people. And only that way will we be able to make uh, progress. I, I feel very uh, grateful to be a part of a team and part of a group that understands that. And so every time we are in some remote part of the world, we put our biases aside and we get down to, to you know, we, we are deep in the trenches and trying to really understand what life is like for people. And also having that humility to know that eventually they are going to, be, to solve their own challenges. Mm. We are just facilitators. We are, we are not the professionals. We just go in to, to, to work with them as they make decisions, design decisions in, in, in health. Yeah. And, you know, I've not been to Kenya, but I've you know, been to uh, West Africa, to Sierra Leone. And, you know, I've seen some of these mistakes where we have Western actors coming in and assuming that they're like the experts and they're going to mm. come up with solutions and they're going to implement it without really understanding who they're designing for and bringing in those people um, and users into that conversation. So I think we can learn a lot of humility when, especially when we're going into a different context and culture and place. And I've had not seen that humility uh, doesn't exist in many of these organizations that, that come in. And, and that's a picture that's changing, to be honest. I think the more, and especially with the, the pandemic, what I've seen is there's an awakening where people are starting to ask themselves, we've spent this amount of resources trying to, to move, to make change in this area, mm-hmm. and it's not happening. So is there another way? And that's an opportunity for the user to actually be involved in a very critical way. Yeah. Speaking of the pandemic, what is the pandemic like been for you in Nairobi right now? Like, how is Nairobi doing? And 
here in Philadelphia, cases have been decreasing, but only recently have people been allowed to go into restaurants. It's been outside and it's pretty cold here <laughs> to eat outside. Yeah. And vaccines have been rolling out here, but it's been off to a pretty rocky start. So I was kind of curious of how Nairobi's doing during the pandemic. Well, Nairobi and Kenya at large, I'd say we are doing pretty well given, you know, given the situation of our healthcare system. Earlier on, we had a positivity rate that was increasing, and I think it got to somewhere around uh, 18 to 20%. Mm -hmm. But then the government enforced a curfew, like it's a partial curfew, and the numbers seem to drop. Then they dropped to a point where the government opened up again, but then still maintained the partial curfew where you can you need to be in the house by 10 p.m. and you can start the day at 4, 4 a.m. Okay. And, and so currently the positivity rate is at around 5%, which I say compared to uh, many parts of the world, this is good. But then compared there's something... to the U.S., so you all are doing so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then I think there's also something I'm, I'm suspecting here where... Pandemics are not really new, if I may say that, in Africa. And I think a lot of cultures are modeled around, you know, dealing with, with, with such catastrophic events that affect a large group of people. I've been in the DRC where I've seen if there's a suspected outbreak, a village just locks down and they become super militant to anyone going in or anyone wants to get out. And I can see traces of that in our our culture where, you know, some of it is, is negative in that there's a lot of stigma driving some behavior. But overall, you find that people have a way of changing their behavior when there's such an event. And that's what I, I, I can say is part of what's really helping to drive down the numbers. Yeah. I want to uh, jump to some projects that you've been working on. And, and speaking of using design to change behaviors, you have done some work on trachoma, and trachoma mm -hmm. is the leading preventable cause of blindness worldwide. It's caused by a very infectious, nasty bacteria, chlamydia trachomatis. It's super contagious, and you've worked with nomadic communities in the desert, mm -hmm. and Ethiopia is a country that is directly north of Kenya. Can you uh, talk about the challenges of that project and how you use design to change behavior? So, so with this project, considering that the Afar Desert is uh, probably the hottest place on Earth and water is a very scarce resource, it's very easy to see why then people will not you know, allocate, they'll not prioritize water for face washing over, over drinking. And also considering that they are nomadic tribes, which means they live with and they move with their animals. And you know, this uh, the fly that carries this bacteria lays its eggs in animal and human feces. Mm. And especially in human feces, that's where the, the eggs can really can really act. Mm. So, so with those conditions, uh, you understand why now this is a, is a very complicated subject. And so what it's a, we... It's a wicked public health problem. Yeah, and we had to go in in 40 degree heat and just try to figure out how do we get people to adopt, you know, to adopt good hygiene practices. And so we realized that, you know, water uh, itself 
wasn't the only issue. There was also an issue in connecting the linkage between, you know, the, the animals and, and, and trachoma. And in this part of the world, animals are what define people. The more cattle you have, the more goats you have, that, you know, defines your place in society. Mm. It's also where you get your basic needs from clothing to mm. food, transport, even homes, because wow. you carry the tents on the animals. So animals wow. are so, so animals are like price. the equivalent to my home, car, and job all tied up into one, sounds like. Yeah, and it's actually modern. It's a basic necessity. Mm-hmm. And so any intervention that says that, hey, stay, have your house here and have your animals 20 meters away, that won't fly. Hmm. Uh, And so without going into a lot of details, one of the interventions we tried out was talking to these families about what it means uh, to be attractive and, and, and to be respected. And uh, we came up with, with this experiment where we would take photos of them before face washing. And then we'd tell them that we want to take now another photo of you and we are going to give you the printout mm-hmm. of the photo. And so, so immediately they would go and wash their faces or at least uh, clean up. It's a very dusty place. And they would put on makeup, uh, for, that's for the women. And then they would come and then have their photo taken. And now we took these uh, printouts and we made this, uh, this book that only had two pages. One page with a printout and the other page had a mirror. Mm. And so you see mirrors are not very common in the far. Mm. And so every time they looked at the mirror, first of all, they love looking at themselves in the mirror, mm. but then having a photo showing the time when they were, they, when they were all made up and had clean faces uh-huh. reminded them that they needed to, to clean their face again. So, so this is just one of, the, one of the things we tested that we saw worked really, really well. And it was just based on an insight we saw in a market on, on market days where people come to trade uh, in, in, in livestock and, and, and tools. And we saw this group of young girls, probably 12 to 14 years, who saw that we had phones that had cameras. And then they actually asked us if we could take a photo and they proceeded to take out these tubes of facial cream. And when we looked at that, we realized that actually this facial cream was skin lightener. And, and, and so we had to really go into that and understand why would someone in the middle of this remote place feel that they'd be more beautiful if they were lighter and if they had a cleaner face. And that, that actually now led us to, to that experiment. That is so creative. And that I, I could just imagine the challenges of that for you and your team going into one of the hottest deserts and you said 40 degrees. So to translate for our American listening audience, that's about Mm -hmm. 104 degrees Fahrenheit, which is freaking hot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, if I'm not wrong, it's actually the hottest place on earth because it's very low. And I think it's just one of those places that has salt flats and it's very brutal. Yeah. And that project that you're describing, it really what I take from it is so much of health, public health is cultural. And it's really, we got to really understand the culture in order to 
design interventions that will work within that community. And if you mm-hmm. did not go and hang out in that desert with these tribes, there's no way yeah. you're going to get those insights if you're not hanging out the, at that market. With, and without those insights, your interventions are going to fail. Yeah, and, it's, and that's a very uh, common feature in all the places we work in. We've been in Tanzania trying to drive uptake of contraceptives uh, among rural communities. And, you know, just a couple of weeks into... Wait, into wait, wait, you're, you're, you're in, in Tanzania. Yeah. Okay, all right. You work all over the place. All over the place. <laughs> so Tanzania is uh, in the south of uh, Kenya, and it's, oh. it's a country that's much bigger than Kenya. Very, very beautiful country, very great people. And it's also very rich in culture. For all the Swahili speakers in Africa can tell you that the Tanzanian Swahili is the cleanest and purest Swahili. It's poetic it's romantic and when you go to tanzania you can feel that energy and you can also experience a culture that has been active for hundreds and hundreds of years Mm. and so it's within some of these cultures that we find barriers to adoption of of, you know some practices or some interventions and and especially in reproductive health Mm. so in this particular case what we were trying to address was the fact that many young girls between the ages of 10 to 14 were, uh, were, were, were getting pregnant. Wow. And, um, Super young. Yeah, and, and getting married off that early. And as a result, not being able to meet their aspirations and also as a result, not being able to contribute to their communities, you know, in, in economic terms yeah. and, and also not being well, able yeah, to... Yeah, be, I imagine they would have to just drop out of school like they can no longer attend classes if you're taking care of kids at age 12. Yeah and you know when we went in one of the things we discovered was there's a culture that has been in place for as long as the people have been in existence there and when a child reaches seven years be it a boy or a girl they are sent off into the forest to be to pass through an initiation. And the initiation involves teaching them on how to have sex or if it's for the young girls, how to please men sexually. And that's at seven years. And seven years old. They're having this conversation. Seven years old. Yeah. And what they what they get out of that is when you leave this initiation, any man is free to have their you know, to have their way with you. Mm. And for the boys, they are told from now on, you're a man and you need to practice your manhood by starting to have sex. Mm. And it's a very strong culture and there are very strong voices that still push that culture. And these are the elders. And so when we went in, we realized that first of all, the common assumption that, you know, education, people just need to be made aware and they will change, you know, that we realized wouldn't work. And we had to figure out a way of working within those cultures and, and sparking change from within. So one of, the, one of the interesting things we tested out was we came up with this, this radio commercial where one of the elders was saying, hey, since I've started doing initiation in a different way and I've seen my community change, 
we are living in modern times mm. and these young people when they succeed they go out there they make it and they come back and they uplift our communities mm. and girls who have gone to school actually are more likely to stay on in the community and build it up mm. and so we then took this mock radio commercial and played it to elders who were practicing were still practicing the current initiation approach so that, that was they, like your design prototype this mock yeah yeah and the first thing they would ask is wow is this what is happening in the north coast wow we need we need to stay relevant wow. are there people who are training them to do this because they could come here and train us too and so we realized that these elders they were hanging on to a culture hmm. for relevance not because they knew what uh, effect it had but they wanted to still stay relevant and that gave us an indication that we had an opportunity to change the narrative from within by creating the perception that actually things have changed the world is moving on and if you don't jump on this wagon you're out that is so much empathy and respect that you had for that culture because it's easy to come in and be so prescriptive and go this is totally wrong you shouldn't be doing this and to have a very top down paternalistic approach but that you and your team went in there to really understand the desires and motivations of that culture and only by doing that can you design a an intervention that will actually work and be adopted by that community I, I wish you could help us out here with the pandemic in the US. I think we need to adopt some of your design principles for our public health interventions. You, that would be exciting. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think the we, next plane there. Because <laughs> I think you know, in the US, I think we have a little bit of arrogance in our approach and we're very narrow-minded and we're not looking at other cultures designers and experts, and especially from the global South. And what, what can we learn from you all and, and bring that to our own country? As mm-hmm. we've been experiencing here, we uh, have had the worst outcomes out of any country on the planet in terms of COVID. And it's been terrible. And mm-hmm. I think we can really learn a lot from people like you, designers like you in, in working in other areas. And you've also done some really cool work with farmers and families in Kenya to increase uptake of healthy diets and to really encourage farming of nutritious projects. Can you describe what that project was? Yeah, this is uh, one of the very interesting projects that I have taken part in and led. And it's because the, the challenge was very unique. Now, the Kenyan highlands are some of the most fertile places in Africa. Here, everything grows. It's beautiful. It's a mountain region. And interestingly, this is also the place that has the highest incidences of non-communicable diseases, and especially ones that are related to, to, to diet. Okay. When, when you and say so, non-communicable diseases, it's like hypertension, diabetes. Diabetes, yeah. Uh-huh. Malnutrition. And so that was a very interesting case because you would expect that people living in these places have access to a very wide, uh, a, a, a wide variety of foods. Yeah. 
why is that? That's, that's <laughs> a, it's a paradox. Yeah. So, so it, and it happens to be, so it happens to be in Kenyan highlands is also the place where we grow tea. Mm-hmm. And so most of the farmers, they are smallholder farmers and most of the farmers have an average of two acres or less of land. And tea is very important to them because it's the main cash crop. Mm. And so you find that many farmers actually uh, use up all their land to plant tea. Mm. Now, the many, very few people who are actually farming now subsistence uh, crops. And also, uh, you find there's also a very unique link between tea and also uh, how the body processes nutrients. So tea uh, sort of uh, blocks the body from taking up iron. And so you have an in- increased uh, cases of anemia. But then other than that, also, if you go to the markets, you find there's a very limited variety of foods. And so, Really? Uh, Why, is it because they're exporting the food to different parts of Kenya? It's, it's actually, they are not, uh, so, so the tea is exported to, to other countries, oh, okay. but then they don't grow any of this food locally. So oh, wow. the food that comes in has to be brought from other counties. E- even, and, though they're, even though their soil is so fertile, they could pretty much grow anything in their backyard. Yes. Okay. Yes. But then there's this, there's, this, uh, there's this perception that, you know, tea represents wealth, Tea, you know, tea makes you fit into that society. So we, we had stories of some people who decided to cut down their, their tea trees and suddenly they were sort of excommunicated and no one would talk to them and everyone was telling them this is a stupid idea. Wow. And so that's how strong tea farming is. And another aspect also is there's agenda angle to it where we have, it's, a, it's very common to see uh, a wife and children, a mother and children out picking tea all day, seven days in a week. And the man in the house waiting at the tea buying, a tea weighing center for them to bring in the tea so that it's weighed. And he's standing there to pick up the receipt so that he can go and take the cash. And so the men, you'll find them sometimes in the centers. And there's this perception that when you have a big family, when you have more than one wife and many children, then you have labor for the tea farms. So these were very uh, interconnected. And so we went through a process of, first of all, understanding what the diet was like. And we also found that there were some beliefs around, you know, a man or a, a family shouldn't sleep if they haven't eaten this heavy starch meal before bedtime. And it's a very common practice. And then after that, you wash it down with tea. So so you've eaten leafy bitter herbs with this, this cornstarch meal, heavy, heavy cornstarch meal, and then you uh, wash it down with tea. And so over time, you find that you don't reap the health benefits yeah. and and actually it, it's related to a lot of like health complications. I, I would gain so much weight on that diet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, but, but also interestingly, it's where all great uh, runners come from. Oh, so it's, get it's Highland. Out. So, yeah, really? so you'll hardly find an overweight person there because it's very hilly. People spend the whole day walking, running. It's produced our greatest uh, marathon runners. Wow. 
And so we had to really understand how they allocate their family resources in terms of food yeah. and what would motivate them to try out new things. And so we, we started off by running experiments on in the tea buying centers where we would come up with a makeshift kitchen and would have men teach the community on, how, on, on, on cooking certain types of foods. Hmm. And it was like a game changer because men don't cook in this yeah. culture. Men don't even know where the kitchen is. And we actually found that the interesting thing was men actually want to try out new things. Yeah. But then they also are the same ones who put a limit as to how much money can be spent on food. Mm. And so having men and women come together uh, and do cooking sessions out in the open, it opened a conversation yeah. and men started talking about hey it's not that I, I wouldn't want new things but i don't think i've ever tried new things mm -hmm. and then the women also had their say where they said it's not like we wouldn't want to give you different kinds of food every day but the money is not enough yeah what, and what so, were some of their new foods that they were creating yeah, so, so one, 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 one of the, the, the new foods was uh, mixing different kinds of vegetables mm. and ensuring that you don't overcook them so that the nutrients are still, the nutrients are still viable. Yeah. Uh, we also had fruits that are not normally consumed there but can grow, grow in all the surrounding areas, and those are avocados. And uh, we did a very interesting experiment with avocados. We went to a marketplace, and we saw there are women and men who are uh, selling fruits, uh -huh. But then we asked ourselves, how comes there's very low demand for foods? Yeah. And so we built these uh, simple cards that explained the main major benefit uh, that comes from that particular fruit, a major health benefit. Yeah. And we put it there. So you'd see the image of an avocado and then some text talking about the healthy fats of avocados and how they also play a part in cardiovascular health. Mm. And we gave a select number of avocado sellers. And before the end of that day, the people with those cards displayed there sold all their avocados. Wow. And then the others who didn't have the cards still hadn't finished their stock. Such a and simple intervention. Yeah, very simple. But then we realized that people... When people have this information, it changes how it changes their decision making. Yeah. Yes. And it challenges this assumption that people just don't want that food. And yeah. People, like people want to eat an unhealthy diet. And it's, yeah. it's a false assumption. I, I love how you bring in like joy and and hope and delight into these public health interventions. And it's not a very it's not a paternalistic you should do this or that. And if you don't, you, it's going to be bad for your health. But you're yeah. really understanding what motivates people in that culture and to align being healthy with those motivations in the culture. It's fascinating. I, we need to do that so, so much more here. What advice do you have for listeners who are thinking about incorporating design or design thinking into public health, global health? That's a great question, and there are so many ways to look at it. But the first, for me, the first piece of advice would be we need to understand we are doing it for people, and we can't do it without 
people. So people have to be, we have to put people, especially the beneficiaries, in the driver's seat. We say in design that the person closest to the challenge knows the most about a challenge and also is in the best position to uh, solve it. Mm, I love so that. So we need to move from being designers to just being cheerleaders and facilitators. And we need to change our approach from leading to working with, with, with our users. And I think that is a game changer because first of all, to do that, you have to throw your biases out the window and humility becomes the currency. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I always say that if you come to some parts of, of, of Africa, it's a graveyard of ideas that looked good and sounded good in a boardroom, but then never came to life. Yeah. And all that money was washed down the drain. Because mm. so many of these ideas were created in boardrooms outside of Africa, in the US or Europe, mm-hmm. and without really understanding the beneficiaries. You, I, I, so much wisdom there. And you are also a board member for Design for Health, which is this global initiative. Can you talk more about that? Because I, I want to point listeners to that. Uh, the website is designforhealth.org. Yeah, so with Design for Health, what we're trying to do is bring together all the players, you know, the players in design in global health to find out, is there a way we can speak the same language? Are there things that are common to all of us that we can pursue together? Are there new practices or global goods that we can tap into to make global health more efficient and more impactful? It's a large group drawn from all over the world of like some of the best, some of the best and most humble people you'll ever meet. And every year we'll come together and sort of figure out what's the strategy, how do we uh, achieve better health outcomes. And I joined a couple of years ago, I think three, uh, two, three years ago. And even in our company, it's helped me to sort of draw linkages between Uh, uh, different uh, projects because we find that you might be dealing right now with a reproductive health project that has a climate change angle. Mm. And so wouldn't it be great to see if all those can be linked because the global health system is so interlinked with other other systems. Mm. And, you know, now we've started talking about planetary health and, and there's something exciting about having all these minds from different backgrounds coming together. Yeah, a great initiative. And uh, it's uh, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and USAID. So you could go to um, designforhealth.org. Michael, I'm so inspired by your journey, by your wisdom. I'm honored that uh, you have joined us on this podcast. And I know our listeners would be inspired as well. Thank you for joining us, Michael. I'm happy to be here. And, and thank you for, for having me on this show. All right, that was my conversation with Michael Gigi. Now I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. What's up, Rob? Hey, Bon. He has an amazing story. We have to visit him as soon as it's safe to do so after the pandemic. I've never been to Nairobi. I want to totally go and meet Michael, really dive into his projects. He's got an incredible story, how he learned about graphic design, right? Really, really awesome story. Uh, One of the things that really struck me is how 
as a young man, he was looking around on the street for a type of lifestyle that he wanted for himself. And the story about how he saw this guy every day, he was like, I want to be like that. And he just asked him one day, what what do you do for a living? He's like, I'm a designer. I'm a graphic designer. See that billboard? I designed that. Such an such an amazing story. And now, you know, he's doing such incredible and impactful work across Africa, really. Yeah, we could really learn from his examples of the public health projects he did, the principles that he applied and apply that to our own country. I wish I wish you could help us out with this mess that we're in with COVID. The challenges and how he addresses them with each of those projects he described is the, like really a true example of human-centered design at its best. 100%. And we have another designer from the African continent next week, right? That's right. Coming to us from Johannesburg, South Africa, we have Mukena Makeka. Good pronunciation um, on that. I think you got that right. I know. Thank you. He is a designer at Dahlberg. Dahlberg is such a great design group. We got introduced to him and Michael through our friend Robert Fabricant. He is the co-author of User Friendly with Cliff Kwong, who was on a previous episode. So thanks to Robert, legendary designer who connected us with two of his great colleagues. Yeah. And I was so inspired from Michael's story. I really can't wait to hear Mukenas. Fantastic. Join us next week and we'll dive into a conversation with Mokena. You can find Michael Gigi on Instagram. His handle is at N-G-I-G-I Michael. And you can also reach me on social media. My Twitter handle is at Bonku. My Instagram is at DR Bonku. And thank you for all those five stars and Apple podcasts. Continue to do that. Subscribe, download episodes. This show was produced by Rob Pugisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.